All right, good morning. So we are continuing through our study through the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves in chapter 27 this morning. So before we read through this long chapter, um, I want you to think of another story from the Old Testament. So do you know or do you remember the story of how King Ahab, he was a wicked king of Israel. His wife's name was... Jezebel, nasty woman. <laughs> um, remember how he died? So he was the king of Judah, southern kingdom. Uh, or I'm sorry, Jehoshaphat was the king of southern kingdom. And Ahab was the king of Israel, northern kingdom. So Ahab wanted to gain back the city of Ramoth-Gilead from Syrian control. So he asked Jehoshaphat if he would fight with him against um, Syria. So Japhat said yes, um, but then he gives it a second thought and he says, you know what, why don't we check with a prophet of the Lord? So Ahab said, hey, I've got 400 prophets. Um, they were more like yes men. They weren't true prophets, but um, they all said, go for it. You'll own the Syrians. Go for it. You go, Ahab. But Jehoshaphat knows that these are just yes men prophets. They're not true prophets. So he's like, he would like a second opinion or like a 401st opinion, okay? So Ahab says, well, there's this other prophet, Micaiah, the son of Imla. I hate him. <laughs> he never prophesies good concerning me. So they summon this guy, Mike, we'll call him, and he prophesies death, death for Ahab. One of Ahab's prophets slaps Micaiah on the cheek for his cheekiness, and Ahab has him thrown in prison. That's what it says in 1 Kings 22. Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. Because again, he prophesied death. So they go up to battle. Ahab, what does he do? He disguises himself so that he doesn't look like a king because the king of Syria was really only looking to kill Ahab. And then in 1 Kings 22, 34, here's what we read. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. I'm guessing that's not a very large area. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle for I am wounded. And he died that night. So, moral of the story, it is futile, it's fruitless to try to fight against the revealed will and word of God, okay? And Isaac, who is one of the main characters in our passage in Genesis 27, as well as all the other characters in the story, need to come to terms with that fact that it is futile and fruitless to try to fight against the revealed will and word of God. There's just no way you're going to thwart his purposes. So it's almost like a movie. As you read through this chapter, so we're going to read through it here in a minute, it's almost like a movie where, you know, there's these stories where there's a prophecy given near the beginning, and the villain hears this prophecy, and it predicts his demise, and so he works obsessively 
to try to overcome um, or kind of thwart that prophecy from coming true. And in doing so, he unwittingly sows seeds to his own demise. Right? Happens in Harry Potter, for all of you Harry Potter fans, um, and other stories as well. All right, so the blessing of Isaac from one generation to the next is the focus of this chapter. Everybody's just selfishly grabbing for it, almost like vultures as Isaac is nearing his death. It's almost like vultures swooping in to gobble up as much as possible. All right, so we see this ugly domino effect of unbelief and sin. So let's read the passage together, and then um, we'll take note of a few things um, and kind of draw it to some application for us. Genesis 27. And you can find this on page 21 in the Pew Bible if you don't have a Bible with you. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah, Isaac's wife, was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before, before I die. Now th therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall, be seen, or I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father, he probably tried to, you know, deepen his voice, kind of like a, well, anyway, okay. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, 
but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who is it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out, with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, he has now taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to him, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. 
Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And on that basis, she asked that he be sent with Isaac's blessing back to her, to their homeland. And Isaac did so. All right? So, just a big mess, train wreck here in chapter 27. So the first thing that we see is this domino effect of unbelief and sin. So there's a quote here as we get started before we look at each character and how they contribute to this big pile of sin in this chapter. So Cornelius Plantinga um, writes this. Why does sin ricochet down the generations? And why does history echo? Where do the patterns of dysfunction in family systems come from? And why are they so miserably hard to fix? Why do even grade school students commit sins in sequence, each touching off the others like firecrackers in a string? Like virtue, sin is a dynamic and progressive phenomenon. Hence its familiar metaphors. Sin is like a plague that spreads by contagion or even by quasi-genetic reproduction. It's a polluted river that keeps branching and rebranching into tributaries. It's a whole family of fertile and contentious parents, children, and grandchildren. Youngsters eventually discover what the wise have known for millennia. People rarely commit single sins. Fevery and lies and lies about lies, macho pride and mockery and assault, laziness and snappishness and cheating and alcohol abuse that empties back into laziness. These sins and products of sin keep on replicating and bunching together like clusters of grapes on the vine. The clusters show up in individual persons, but also in groups. Hence, the corruption of persons, of communities, of whole cultures. Describes this chapter pretty well. Describes our lives and families and communities. We see this all over the place, right? So this chapter is just this, just a big mess. And the whole mess gets started not with Rebecca, though I think oftentimes we think first of her conniving. It starts with Isaac. So actually, Isaac is the primary culprit in the chapter. He knocks the first domino. Everyone's at fault, certainly. It's a train wreck. Everybody's contributing. But Isaac is the one who first actually rejects God's word. Okay, so his plan is actually a secretive, deceptive plan flying in the face of God's revealed word. So it's doomed to fail from the start. So if you, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago when we considered Genesis 25, I think it'll be up on the screen here. Chapter 20, 25, verse 20 says this. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? 
So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord answered her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So it's already been revealed who's going to serve whom. So when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when, he, when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And then this, Isaac loved Esau. So there's parental favoritism. Because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we get tipped off to this parental favoritism from the very beginning. And it leads both Rebecca and Isaac to make some really underhanded moves in direct contradiction to God's word. So Isaac plans to bless Esau, his favorite, even though the Lord had already said that the older will serve the younger. And even though Esau had already made an oath to Jacob when he gave up his birthright, right? Certainly Isaac knew of that situation because Esau whined about it afterwards, right? It's, it's inconceivable that Esau would keep that quiet. So this plan to bless Esau is just totally flying in the face of what God has said. And Esau's already betrayed his character. He's already married two Canaanite women, okay, which was a no-no for heirs of the promise, right? Abraham sent his son Isaac, well, his servant, to go get a wife for Isaac from their kinspeople and not from the Canaanites, right? So, it's just doomed from the beginning. And it seems like Isaac... His spiritual edge has kind of grown dull over the years, and he's allowed his stomach to become his God. So Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his, his game, and we hear this phrase of such as I love, this delicious food that I love, repeated over and over again in chapter 27. So 27.3, now then take your weapons and your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. That delicious food language is repeated five more times in the chapter. It's almost like Isaac is another Esau selling his integrity for a bowl of savory stew. Okay, this doesn't bode well. So the other thing is here, if you're kind of reading it carefully, this is not just offhanded kind of comment on a whim. Oh, I could really go for a bowl of stew. Why don't you go get me some and gee, I'll bless you. No, he wants to bless Esau. He knows he's about to die. He wants to bless Esau with all his soul. Look at verse 4. So that my soul may bless you before I die. That is, is kind of strong language in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language. Um, 
it means that he really wants to bless Esau wholeheartedly with all of his resources. It's coming wholeheartedly from all of who he is, and he wants to bless Esau with all of his resources. So again, this is flying directly in the face of the word that the Lord had already revealed, that the older would serve the younger. If there's any light that kind of breaks into the darkness, um, just in case you ever read this in Hebrews and wonder, how in the world is this square? Um, Hebrews 11.20 says this, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Does that seem to contradict this thing? <laughs> like, wait a second, how did you do that by faith? Seemed like this is just flat-out rebellion. Well, once, did, did you pick up on any pointers how that could be the case? Once the deception becomes known to Isaac, he trembles, right? But he also realizes that his deception has been blown open, and he accepts defeat, and he actually does bless Jacob. If you, if you look um, at the beginning of the next chapter, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Go to Padnaram. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings. So he realizes that, you know what? I, there's no way I was going to get away with this. I'm defeated. The will of the Lord be done. I'm sorry. Esau, there's an anti-blessing for you. I have to submit to God in this. And Jacob, you will be blessed. So he does, in a sense, despite the way he starts in unbelief, he accepts defeat, and he accepts the fact that God is working his will, and he does give the blessing, reiterates the blessing in faith. All right? So this whole train wreck of deception and manipulation does not begin with Rebecca getting shrewd and deceptive. Her reaction was actually catalyzed by Isaac's stated plan to ignore the prophecy and try to bless, get the blessing to his older son. But that doesn't mean she's guiltless. Everybody's guilty here. Um, so let's look now at how Rebecca took matters into her own hands. So she didn't trust the promise that she was given by God. So he, he gave it to her, and she could have appealed to him, Right? Again, back to Genesis 25, 20 to 28. She's pregnant with the twins. They're struggling within her. She's wondering what's going on. She inquires of the Lord. She prays. And the Lord responded, her, responded to her and answered. So she did, didn't either think or trust or she wrongly thought that maybe, well, I need to help God out here. Even deceptive help to accomplish his plan. So she overhears Isaac's plan and she springs into action, takes matters into her own hands, and does not trust in the Lord. And really just asks her son to follow along in this deceptive, sinful path of 
manipulation and deceit. Sadly, Jacob then is a willing accomplice. Okay? He doesn't seem to be worried at all about the morality of this whole thing. <laughs> so look at verses uh, 11 and 12. He's only concerned about whether or not it could get pulled off. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, this isn't right. We shouldn't deceive Dad. Remember the prophecy, Mom? I mean, God said that I was going to, like, like that Esau was going to serve me, bow down to me. So you're not trusting the Lord. You need to pray. <laughs> That's not what he said. Hey, he says, hey, Esau's hairy. I'm not. Dad might feel me and think I'm mocking him, and I'm going to bring a curse down on myself. I'm just afraid it's not going to work. So, Jacob is certainly guilty of deception and lying. He's willing to lie repeatedly. Verse 18, who are you, my son? I'm Esau, your firstborn. Again in verse 24, are you really my son Esau? I am. He's even willing to speak blasphemy. Did you notice it? Verse 20, Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Oh, like look out for the lightning bolt. So all of this taking matters into their own hands, they gained nothing that God would not have given to them. He had promised. He would have fulfilled it. But instead, because they took matters into their own hands, they actually lost quite a bit. You know that Rebecca never saw her beloved younger son, Jacob, again. Because he didn't make it back before she died. He was 20 years in Padanaram. Jacob lost the security and resources of home. He was a wanderer, you know? So it doesn't seem like he ever received any material inheritance, even though obviously he did receive the blessing and the promise. And he had to flee for his life. So everybody's contributing to this big steaming pile of sin. Lastly, Esau. So he had already obviously despised his birthright. Since he'd already taken an oath when he did so, remember, he is breaking his oath by going along with his dad's request. So, you know, he might be thinking, well, I screwed up by giving up my birthright, but maybe I won't lose it after all. Sure, I'll go hunting. He'd already married these Canaanite women, you know, which was a no-no, as I mentioned before. And then we read about Esau in Hebrews 12. Again, this is a cautionary tale. So the writer of the Hebrews warns us with Esau's example. Look at Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. In fact, that section starts out by saying, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So the it, he sought it with tears. What does that it refer to? 
Repentance or the blessing? The blessing. Yeah. He didn't care about his sin. He cared about the blessing. He wanted the blessing. He had a hard heart. He didn't he wasn't interested in repenting. In fact, it's clear that that's the case because after Jacob was blessed, Esau planned to kill his brother, presumably out of revenge, but also maybe to regain the birthright and the blessing. Okay? So that confirms that Esau is a son of the serpent in the line of Cain, the murderer. So here's this train wreck of sin. It's a cautionary tale. It's a warning. None of this scheming is condoned. Okay? So Alan Ross summarizes the lesson of the chapter like this. He says, God's people who know God's will must not stoop to deceptive, manipulative schemes to gain spiritual success, but must strive to achieve God's will righteously. So you can imagine, have you ever thought about justifying cutting corners or underhanded stuff at work in order to provide for your family? That's a good, good end, but it's a deceptive means. Or you'll be able to give more. That's a good end. That's a deceptive means. God doesn't need the help. <laughs> kind of like Rebecca's trying to help the plan of God along. So Apostle Paul captures what it sounds like to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and follow Jesus, walking in the light, when he says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So despite this train wreck, all the mess, all the fallout, God is working out his eternal purposes and so here is where the glimmer of hope begins to shine. Okay, so Sidney Gradonis um, writes this. He says, God can use even human deception to accomplish his redemptive plan, which reassures God's people that our sovereign God's redemptive plan cannot be derailed. So there were consequences for each person, to be sure. But despite all of the deception, all the betrayal, all the sin, God's plan of covenant blessing could not be thwarted. Okay, so that is really good news. He will accomplish his will, through us or despite us. His plan can't be derailed. So Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Okay, so the coming of the kingdom of God, his rule, his reign, that being established in the earth, the will of God, the plans of God, it can seem like so often in our lives or around us or in our church or in our country, it can seem like it's one step forward, two steps back. Can it? You ever feel like that happens? Or maybe one step forward, five steps back. And you're like, more mess and wreckage happens, and it's like, why? How is this accomplishing your purposes? Why won't you do something? Why didn't you stop this? But again, we need to be reminded and encouraged here. His plan cannot and will not fail. So 
despite all this sin and mess, they're all striving and grasping and straining to obtain and secure the blessing of God for themselves. They're willing to deceive and betray to do it, but it was all superintended, all overruled by God to accomplish His purposes, which maybe might sound familiar if we fast forward ahead to the ultimate betrayal that could not derail the ultimate blessing. In fact, it was a part of accomplishing the ultimate blessing. Acts 4.26 says this, The kings of the earth set themselves, this is the early church, as they're praying after the apostles had been persecuted. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, kangaroo court, false witnesses, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all these lies about Jesus, not to mention Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, like Jacob's kiss betrayed his blind father. But verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So all for the sake of obtaining a blessing for people like you and me that deserve to be cursed for our sin. The ultimate betrayal of Jesus, our Savior, led to the ultimate blessing. So praise God that his grace is greater than our sin. Praise God that that's true. The, the way to blessing is not in you and me. We can't connive and scheme to obtain the blessing. It's not in us. There's only sin in us. It's only in and through Jesus. And God has used all of our sin, the sins of the, the Pharisees and you know, Herod and Pontius Pilate and Judas to accomplish his purposes so that he could bless us. This is the glimmer of hope that God is accomplishing his purposes to bless his people despite all the mess. So we're going to sing this song to close here in just a minute called Not In Me. And the last four lines are so fitting to close with here. My righteousness is Jesus's life. My debt was paid by Jesus's death. My weary load was borne by him and he alone can give me rest. We just bring mess to the table, but Jesus cleaned up the mess so that we could be blessed. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that in us, we only bring mess and sin to the table, but we thank you that that doesn't get in the way or thwart your purposes of blessing your people. So we praise you and we thank you that you have accomplished your purposes and you've accomplished redemption and salvation through Jesus. And I pray that we would also see that you are working all things together for good, even though we don't see it right now. And you will return one day and set everything to rights. And I pray that we would not try to take matters into our own hands and freak out 
and try to make things happen on our own, but that we would trust in you with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.